And then if you would, re if you would turn in the scriptures with me to, uh, to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Second book of the Old Testament. Chapter 3. Ancient words that we prayed that we, our hearts would be open to receive them and to hear them and also then speak into our lives. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Whom, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What's his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. So far the reading of God's word, the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he had finished one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. 
And Jesus did. Right on the spot. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Father, hallowed be your name. That's how you begin. In other words, as we talk with God, as we commune with our Lord, we know that the Father comes first. What Jesus teaches in the Lord's Prayer is that we must begin our prayers with the Lord, not with ourselves. What we must learn and what Jesus teaches in the first petition is that God matters infinitely more than we do. And his kingdom and his glory are infinitely more important than our kingdom, our kingdoms, our glory. And so we ought not to begin our prayers with statements concerning ourselves, but rather with an understanding of whom we are talking to, namely the Lord God Almighty, our Father. Now the fact that we're taught to begin our prayers with our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, is more than merely a question of word order or protocol in our praying. This concerns, this is a question of priorities in one's life. How we are to pray as Jesus taught is how the program of our life is to be set. God is to be acknowledged at the beginning of that program, throughout, and also at the end. John Calvin and those who picked up on his teachings had the motto, to God be the glory. Well, living life from the perspective that glory be to God alone calls for a life not of self-promotion, but a life of praise to God. Narcissists must have a really hard time with this prayer. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 115, verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And elsewhere, Jesus taught that we are to seek first the kingdom of heaven. We are to set our hearts on heavenly treasures, not on earthly treasures, where, which will rust, rust and rot and eventually disappear. And so we pray, hallowed be your name, after we have addressed our Father in heaven. In all things, he, we must decrease, whereas he must increase, as the Apostle John put it. But this is not our natural inclination, so we have to do this consciously. And in an age of increasing secularism and increased individuality, it, it doesn't seem to come naturally for us to put God first or to talk about God's faithfulness or God's goodness. Much more emphasis in our world seems to be on the self, on who we are, on what we are capable of, on filling our own, satisfying our own desires and our own approaches and thinking that we're capable of anything and everything. If you dream it, you can do it. You're able to do anything you want as long as you put your mind to it. So much of life in our world around that we're challenged with and that we're confronted with all the time is about us, is about the person and about what the person can do. And such a worldview is increasingly part of the life of the church too. 
I hear it all the time. So, for example, when parents bring their children for baptism, it's so often that the conversation is about the parents' promises and the parents' responsibility on raising child. Or baptism seen as, as a person's profession of faith. It's all about that person. When really, at that point, which is the point of the sacrament of baptism, we ought not to be talking about us, but we ought to be talking about God and about the Lord's promises and the Lord's covenant faithfulness to us and to our children. And so we perhaps when we walk through the line, we congratulate parents. And we're thinking, and I'm thinking sometimes, why are we congratulating people? Maybe we ought to walk past them and say, praise God for his covenant faithfulness to you and to your children. God always ought to come first. Our Father in heaven. And when we place God first and try to give him the glory, then our prayers and our way of living will be affected and maybe somewhat different from what we are experiencing now. One commentator trying to drive home this point used the example of a prisoner sitting in prison during a war. That prisoner sitting in the cell didn't know what was going to happen to him. Maybe hard labor or a concentration camp was awaiting him, or maybe it was a firing squad. If the latter were the case, it meant that he would never see his beloved wife or children again. So imagine his anxiety every time he heard the jingling of keys outside the cell door. We hear him pray, says the writer, which, may, which we think is natural, and we hear him pray in a way that perhaps we often pray in the midst of illness or some financial difficulty, saying, Merciful Father, you are so good and so mighty. Release me from my prison cell. Return me to my family. You only have to speak one word, and I know it's possible. Lord, release me from my torment. Lord, help. He writes, that's how human nature would lead us to pray. And, of course, we can easily identify with that way of praying. We do it often. When we become, as it were, the center of the universe, when we cannot see beyond ourselves or beyond our own suffering or beyond our own situation, then we're also going to pray self-centered prayers, prayers of self-preservation, which we expect Jesus, of course, to respond to. But Jesus said, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, the prayer of those who know the Lord ought to be different. So it may be something like this. Now thinking again of that prisoner. Merciful Father in heaven, I pray that you will release me and allow me to return to my family. However, if your name is hallowed by my imprisonment, then leave me here in this cell where you are as well. If it is to your honor that because of my witness to you, I must be put to death, then grant me the grace necessary to be true to you and grant me the strength to face death. Lord, you come first. You must always come first, and I must follow. What happens to me is of secondary importance, but what happens to you and to your name is of primary importance. May your name be honored and praised by me and through what, way, what may happen 
to me in Jesus' name. Amen. I trust you know the difference between the two prayers. The latter is much more difficult for us by nature to pray, and yet this is precisely what Jesus teaches in the first, second, and third petitions of the Lord's Prayer, for that matter. It's what he prayed himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. My Father, it's, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Lord, your will comes first. Your name comes first. That's the type of prayer many martyrs uh, of the faith prayed. It's hard. It's actually impossible, almost impossible for someone who does not know the Lord at all to pray this Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer for the children of the Heavenly Father. Father, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? Hallowed. The word hallowed is not exactly a word that we commonly use in our vocabulary from day to day. Yet we use it this month, once again. We talk about Halloween. So it's not entirely foreign to us. The word hallow comes from the root that means to make holy. So if we think about the day of Halloween, Halloween, that means hallow or holy evening, Halloween. To hallow something is to acknowledge, to know, to honor something as being holy. To be holy is to be sacred, to be set aside. It is to be perfect, to be separated, as John 17 verse 11 states. The word holy refers to all that makes God different from us, in particular his awesome power and purity. It's no wonder that Moses fell and covered his face and fell prostrate before that burning bush. It's no wonder that others in the scripture who came into the presence of God fell at his feet as though dead. It's no wonder that a certain amount of terror registered by sinful human beings when they were confronted by the divine, even as the angels at the tomb made the soldiers sore afraid. They were so scared it hurt in the presence of a holy God. Our Father in heaven, you are holy, you are mighty, you are God. We, your children, bow before you in prayer, aware of the fact that we do not in the least Match up to who you are. And so, Lord, when it really comes down to it, we can't really stand in your presence. When we are to pray, we are to say, Hallowed or holy be not our name, but your name. As our prayer begins, we ask something of God, namely that his name be made holy. That doesn't mean that his name is not yet holy. But we ask that God be recognized not only by ourselves, but also by all people as being God. We begin our prayer, we're asking for worldwide name recognition, as it were. Not only simple recognition, but such recognition that it leads to worship. 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Lord, may your name be heard, glorified, held high, worshipped. May all the kingdoms bow before you. Your name. Yes, the Lord has a name. We don't pray to the force. We don't pray to some great spirit, some aura, some inner consciousness. On the contrary, when we pray, we're talking with a personal God who is alive and who acts throughout history and who has all things in his hands. And this God has a name. Actually, as one biblical study put it, 953 names or references throughout the scriptures. This morning we read about one instance in the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Moses, after having been commissioned to go to Egypt and bring Israel out, asked the Lord, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What do I tell them? As William Willimon and Stanley Hauser put it in their book about the Lord's Prayer, who are you, Moses asks. Are you a concept like liberation or self-esteem or freedom? And God's first answer is a puzzling conversation stopper. I am who I am. Or they write, I'll be present to whom I am present. I am has sent me to you. In other words, God makes it clear that he is greater than emperors like Pharaoh who had power over the people of Israel at the time. This God speaking through the burning bush, they write, creates this God's own identity, living, true. This God is not to be jerked about by every human whim and cry. This God is sovereign, free, untamed, compassionate, and holy. This God is perfect. This God is the creator. This God is God, the sovereign. And in verse 15, the Lord added, say to the Israelites, not in a by the way kind of form, but he said, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. The God of the generations before and the God of the generations to come. The eternal God who always was, is, and will be has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. The God who spoke was the Almighty. The God who spoke was the one who had established a special covenant relationship with his people, a covenant that we see confirmed every time we witness the sacrament of baptism. The God who spoke was the one who loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, into this world to die for our sins, something that we're reminded of every time we partake of the Lord's Supper as we hope to do again next Sunday morning. I am who I am. God's name speaks of who and what God is. 
And so when we speak the name of the Lord, we're actually talking about the Lord himself. And so when David sang in Psalm 145, I will praise your name forever and ever. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. He was really speaking about praising and honoring the name of the Lord. Remember the third commandment of the law? The third commandment of the law about misusing the name of the Lord is a counterpart to the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. When we consider the third commandment of the law, you will not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name, we learn there's a direct correlation between God and his name. They're almost one and the same, closely connected. And so when we use the Lord's name in a curse or when we speak lightly of the Lord, the name of the Lord, we misuse the Lord himself. And we speak lightly of the Lord himself. And that's something that the third commandment tells us the Lord doesn't tolerate. The potter ought never to speak disparagingly, so to speak, of the clay, of the potter. The pot ought never to speak disparagingly of the potter. God is the potter, we're the clay. And the clay doesn't usually talk back to the one who makes it. And the master is known by his work. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, says the catechism, we're essentially saying two things. First, we already heard these words, help us to really know you, to bless, worship, and praise you for all your works and for all that shines forth from them your mighty power, wisdom, kindness, justice, mercy, and truth. The psalmist knew what this meant. Everywhere in the work of creation and in the events of, in the events of history, he observed not the hands of fate, not the hands of Mother Nature, not some impersonal force, but he observed the hands of a faithful covenant God. And when the writer looked back at the history of the people of Israel, he saw the work of God, of the fathers, and he saw that that God protected them from their enemies. He saw God as a righteous God, punishing evil, yet not deserting his people, but walking with them even through the valley of the shadow of death. The Lord is the creator and the redeemer. To hallow his name means to acknowledge all these things about the Lord as being true and to not only make them head knowledge, but to make them heart knowledge. For when it becomes heart knowledge, when we come to know the Lord in such a way, we'll respond with worship and praise and we'll be eager to tell others about it so that they can join in the worship and the praise of God, so that God indeed receives all the glory he's worthy to receive. We perhaps don't often see this, but the first petition also then, in a sense, is a call to missions. It's a call to God to make others recognize his creative and redemptive power, so that so when one marvels at the beauty and the splendor and the majesty of creation and sees it as the handiwork of the creator God and then sings how great thou art, you hallow God's name. Of course, the opposite is also true. 
If we ignore the Lord and the fact that he created all things and that this world belongs to God, we do not hallow or we do not advance or make God's name holy. If someone picks up the Bible and marvels at the great story of salvation, the great story of Jesus and his love, and responds to it through the working of the Holy Spirit by believing and thanking the Lord and then urges others to respond, they hallow God's name. The opposite is also true. If we ignore the word, we keep our Bibles closed, if our prayer is non-existent, if we don't want much to do with the Lord and his people, we don't hallow God's name. We see then that praying, hallowed be your name, is not only a prayer that we may know the Lord and praise him accordingly, but secondly, it's also a call to personal Christian living. It's a call to reflect God's glory in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. Did you notice how the catechism put it? Help us to direct all of our living, what we think, say, and do, so that your name will never be blasphemed because of us, but always honored and adored. Note how the third commandment is reflected there. The Apostle Paul talks about us as being living letters written by the Spirit of God so that when people talk, look at us and talk to us, they will know, they're supposed to at least know, whose image we bear. They'll know that we are Christians by our love and by our talk and by our actions and by all kinds of things. Willimon and Hauerfwas write, As we praise God, we become formed in his image. As Augustine writes, we imitate whom we adore. If we don't adore the Lord... We're not going to imitate him, and we're not going to be much of a witness to this world or give him praise. One commentary on the catechism gave an expanded version of the first petition so that we can catch the full meaning. Quote, Dear Father, take over our lives. Take full control. Rule us completely. Make us holy by helping us to hallow your name so that others through us may do so too. We pray this in Christ's name, for he led the way in honoring your name. Amen. This is indeed true, for the Lord hallowed his name most fully in the sending of his Son. And now we hallow it best by listening to Christ's call to obedient living. Hallowed be your name, as someone else wrote. In other words, write your name legibly in my life, Father, so that others can read and heed. May this day, this hour, my writing, my sermon, my sickness, my health, my going out and my staying home, my money spending and my money saving, everything and all of me, bring glory, Father, to your name. When we learn to pray as Jesus taught, our voices are added to the great chorus singing, Lord, our Lord in all the earth, how excellent your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Amen. We pray a prayer which is based on Ephesians 3. 
Father, we bow before you, you from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. We pray that out of your glorious riches you may strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that being rooted and established in love, we may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen.